Mystery of the Ragged Stranger podcast. My name is Michael Hendricks, and I will be your host. This podcast aims to take a deep look at what was one of Chicago's most famous crimes, a case of murder from 1920 that centered around the Ragged Stranger and Carl Wanderer. This episode is the third of an eight-part series, available for download or to stream on the Ragged Stranger blog at chicagonow.com. On the blog, there is an easy email subscription sign-up if you'd like to have this podcast emailed to you upon each new episode being aired. On the night of June 21st, 1920, on Chicago's north side, two bodies lay dead in the small vestibule of a two-flat. Ruth Wanderer was dead, initially believed to have been killed by a would-be robber, who was then slain by her war hero husband, Carl. The robber had no identification on him, and when the investigation of the murder first got underway, the best ID police had of the man, that would be known as the Ragged Stranger, was that he might have been a chauffeur for an afternoon newspaper, and that his name was Matson or Watson. With front-page headlines devoted to the mystery surrounding the murder of young, pregnant Ruth, it was not long before the police and every reporter in town had determined that there was no chauffeur nor any newspaper delivery driver from any of the various daily or weekly, morning or evening edition papers in Chicago by either name that was unaccounted for. Neither Maxson nor Watson was the ragged stranger. With their first lead having been a dead end, the police chased the last few leads they had. On the ragged stranger's body had been found a commissary card from the John Robinson Circus in the name of E. Masters. The detectives thought he might be Edward Masters, a criminal from out of state known by police due to his reputation and record. Upon further investigation, though, this too would prove untrue, as the gunman was found to be alive and well. Edward Masters, known gunman, was not the ragged stranger. In continuing to follow the lead of the commissary ticket, the police tracked down Earl Masters with the John Robinson Circus and also found him to be alive. Masters told police that he had loaned a coat of his to fellow circus worker John Maloney and the commissary ticket must have been in one of the pockets. Masters said Maloney had left the circus the week before after a show in Duluth, Minnesota. Earl Masters was not the ragged stranger. The police determined that without telling any of his fellow workers, Maloney had left the circus in Duluth and made his way to Chicago with Earl Masters' jacket on his back and the commissary card in his pocket. Maloney might have been trying to escape a pass that had left a wide wake. The show in Duluth was the second to last show in Minnesota before the John Robinson Circus crossed the border into Canada for a string of eight shows. The fact that Maloney had a felony manslaughter conviction on his record would likely have presented problems at the border getting into Canada. The deeper the police looked into Maloney, the more promising the lead looked. Chicago hotel clerk, John Welland, confirmed that he had a John J. Maloney on his hotel register as checking in Friday, June 18th, three days prior to the murder, and his signature was on the registry every day until June 21st, the day of the murder. The clerk also found that Maloney had not checked out and still had an outstanding bill. John Maloney was raised in Rhode Island, the youngest of nine children. His father was a wool spinner in a mill and passed that trade through his family, having John working in a cotton mill by the time he was 13. Over the years he stayed in the mills, progressing from cotton to iron as a crane operator for Bethlehem Steel. 
Drowning his sorrows on the night of September 25, 1913, Maloney got into a drunken quarrel with a man named Christopher Kenyon in an Appenog saloon near Greenwich Bay. Maloney hit Kenyon with a club, dragged his body into a swamp, and stuffed mud and sod down his throat to silence his cries for help. He then returned to the saloon and resumed drinking, leaving Kenyon to die in the swamp. Maloney was arrested three hours later while still in the same saloon. Maloney was 27 years old at that time, with a wife 20 years his senior, and without children. She drained her savings to hire a top-notch lawyer to defend her husband, and despite overwhelming evidence of his guilt, a murder charge was pled down to manslaughter and a sentence of 10 years. Not bearing to be alone, his wife continued to spend every cent she could to free her husband. A request for a pardon was passed through the right hands and landed on Rhode Island Governor Livingston Beekman's desk. On April 25, 1918, after having served four years of a 10-year sentence for a callous murder, Maloney was paroled. He promptly repaid his loving, devoted wife by fleeing the state without so much as a goodbye. After deserting his wife, Maloney bounced from job to job, and in early June 1920, was employed by the John Robinson Circus as a wagon driver. One of the highlights of every summer in the pre-television days was the circus coming to town. The big top, all manner of creepy clowns, a midway teeming with circus barkers extolling their freak shows or trained wild animals. If you were in Duluth the night of Monday, June 14th, the circus was the place to be. A threat of rain never materialized, and the evening saw a typical performance from the circus. Around nine o'clock that night, their show over, the circus workers went about taking the big top down, loading wagons so that a driver like Maloney could then deliver the load to the waiting rail cars for their departure out of town. 18-year-old Jimmy Sullivan had met his 19-year-old girlfriend, Irene Tuscan, at the circus, and what they did that night would affect multiple families for generations to come. A road barely one wagon wide cut a path through the trees from the circus ground to the railroad where the circus was loading up. Whether Jimmy and Irene went down to the road to see behind the scenes of the circus, or to steal a kiss, or to sneak a sip of hooch, is unknown. They both seemed fine later that night, when Jimmy dropped Irene off on the front porch of her house around 10.30 that night. Her father was still up reading the paper as she came in, and she told him that she was going up to bed. Peeking into her parents' room, she told her mother that she and Jimmy had met up and gone to the circus together. She told her mother goodnight, and then went to bed. Jimmy worked a night shift and got to his job on the docks of Lake Superior a bit before his midnight shift started. Sometime after one o'clock in the morning, he went into the office of his father, who also worked on the docks, and said he wanted to talk. He told his father that he and Irene had been attacked at the circus. He said several black circus workers had stopped he and his girlfriend, put a gun to Jimmy's head, and threatened to blow it off should he say anything. Then, five or six of the roustabouts raped Irene while making Jimmy watch. Had they not had the gun, perhaps he might have been able to do something, he told his father. Shocked by what he'd been told, the senior Sullivan called to speak to Irene's father and told Mr. Tuscan what Jimmy had just relayed. Irene then confirmed to her mother that her night had transpired, just as Jimmy had said. The police were called, and Jimmy told the police chief that Irene had been so brutally attacked that she was barely able to walk. At the railroad depot, all black circus workers were pulled from their train amid cries from the Duluth chief of police that six of the workers had raped a white girl. Jimmy and Irene were walked along the line of workers until they had picked out six people that they had said were the perpetrators. The six roustabouts were arrested and in the Duluth jail before the break of day. 
A consequence of the early morning arrest was that the story, for the most part, was not mentioned in the morning editions of the local newspapers. In place of reading the story in print, news of the rape spread through town via the grapevine. Irene's age was gossiped to be 18, then 15, and then someone said 12. Three, no it was five, maybe six. Some heard 10 men raped her. An extremely unfortunate exchange no doubt added to the rage. Neighbors of the Tuscans were walking by and saw Mrs. Tuscan on the front porch. They asked her how Irene was doing. She's dead, was what the neighbor heard, rather than she's in bed, as the mother had said. Like the old telephone game you played as a kid, the story was passed from person to person, more warped with each retelling. The flames of the townspeople were stoked, ultimately reaching the point where a mob walked on the jail that evening, a jail that had been left in the charge of the city public safety commissioner. The chief of police and two of his top deputies had left Duluth that afternoon for Virginia, Minnesota, to track down a few other circus workers they had been told might be able to shed more light on the alleged rape. With the chief gone, the public safety commissioner ordered the remaining police officers to avoid using their firearms under any circumstance. He was reported to have said, I don't want to see the blood of one white person spilled for six blacks. With those marching orders, the 12 remaining police officers set up barricades and fire hoses to be used against the growing mob. Bricks from a nearby construction site were thrown at the police and the windows of the jail. The hoses were unleashed on the mob, but before long the police were overrun and their hoses were taken and used against them. The mob attacked the jail from all directions. They tried to break down barricaded doors, they climbed through broken windows, and jimmied open garage doors. One of the mob went into the hardware store across the street for several lengths of rope and was given them free of charge. On the house, boys. You're doing good work, reportedly said the proprietor. There were several Duluth residents that put up a fight against the mob and tried to be the voice of reason. Duluth attorney Hugh McLean mounted a ladder to exhort the crowd to, Give the courts a chance to administer justice according to law. Sergeant Olson says there are six men upstairs. Three of the men the police have no dope on at all. They may be absolutely innocent. We don't care if they're innocent or guilty, someone shouted in retort to Mr. McLean. Kill the black snakes, chanted the mob. The six young men cowered in their cells as they heard the growing noise of a crowd turn into an angry mob. Don't worry, their jailers told them. This is Duluth, not Alabama. We don't hang people in the north. Meanwhile, outside, the mob mentality was fueled with comments like, what if it had been your daughter? Or, are you gonna let them get away with it? The mob was estimated widely from 1,000 to 10,000 people, but to the frightened young men in their cells, it probably sounded like a million. A young white girl in her late teens stood at the entrance of the jail and cursed the mob for what they were doing. As the policemen meekly gave up their defense of the jail, she scolded the policemen's ineptitude and cursed them as well. Without a shot being fired, and with nothing more than bricks, sticks, clubs, and stones, a vigilante mob overtook the police station in jail. The prisoners heard the cheers as members of the mob broke a hole through the brick wall of the building. Dozens of people stormed through the hallways looking for the jail cells. The fact that the mob found the cells before they found the keys to the cells provided a brief ray of hope for the young men as the steel bars between them and the mob went from imprisoning them to saving them. Eventually though, the keys were found and the jail cells were opened. The mob beat the men and then corralled them into one cell, lining them up against a wall. We want to be fair, 
Now, which one of you did it? The mob jury obviously had a verdict preordained, and the honest protestations from the defendants fell on deaf ears. Never mind the questions. Let's just kill them. The mob pulled 20-year-old Isaac McGee from the cell, unaware that he'd not been arrested for being a part of the rape, but had simply been held as a material witness. After having his nose broken, a tooth knocked out, and soiling himself while being pulled from a cell, he was led through a gauntlet as he was taken outside. Women hit him over the head with their high-heeled shoes, and children spat upon him. All the while, he proclaimed his innocence and asked for mercy. A moment of dread was shared with Isaac by a boy perched high atop a gas street lamp overlooking the scene. Having been perched up there for some time to get a bird's eye view of the mob attacking the jail, the young boy watched in horror as the gauntlet young Isaac was put through ended below him at the base of the street lamp. Starting to descend, the boy was met with shouts and a rope thrown up to him. Toss this rope over the top, kid. Put in a horrible predicament, the boy looked down upon the bloodthirsty mob and ran the rope through the top of the light and back down to the hangman below. Begging for his life, Isaac had the noose put around his neck and tightened. Lifted off his feet, the rope compressed his carotid arteries, cutting off blood flowing to his brain. His body kicked and spasmed a mere few feet above the pavement as the crowd cheered. Elmer Jackson, a young man of 24, suffered the same indignities as Isaac McGee, but went about meeting his maker differently, if not downright defiantly. At the base of the light pole, with McGee still hanging from it and a crowd screaming to have his neck stretched, he took a pair of dice from his pocket and rolled them on the ground. I won't need these anymore in this world, he said to the mob about to kill him. Well, you might want to roll them in the next, he was told while being given back his dice. The noose was put around his neck and he was hoisted up to die of strangulation alongside McGee. Word was spreading that the police chief was getting back into Duluth and that the National Guard was being called in. Before their vengeance could be halted, Elias Clayton was pulled from jail. He emerged from the jail like the others, blood streaking across his black skin, his shirt torn from his body. His fate would be no different from the others, though, save from being pulled up high above the other two bodies hanging from the pole. A car with a spotlight was pulled up to illuminate for the crowd what they had done. They posed for photos, but only after cutting down Elias Clayton so they could get him in frame for the picture. Ordinary Minnesotans had just lynched three innocent men and now basked in the aftermath. Souvenir postcards of the macabre scene were not only printed, but sold out. Order was restored, so to speak, before anyone else could be hanged, as the National Guard had arrived to protect the jail and the remaining prisoners. In the interest of assuring justice, charges were filed. Seven black circus workers were charged with the rape of Irene Tuscan. This, despite detectives being told by her doctor that after examining her, he did not believe she was raped and suffered from nothing more than nervous exhaustion. Of the seven charged, one man was found guilty and sentenced to seven to thirty years in prison. He was released after serving four years on the condition that he leave the state of Minnesota and never return. Duluth County Attorney Warren Green said, I intend to round up the men who took the law into their own hands here recently and punish them severely. An investigation has already been started. Within a few days, we will have over 50 men under arrest. Ultimately, 37 indictments for rioting and murder were handed down. Three of those white men went to jail, convicted for rioting with none serving longer than two years in jail. 
no one was ever convicted for the lynching murder of the three innocent men. Duluth resident Abram Zimmerman was nine years old at the time of the lynching and lived two blocks away. He told his son of the story, and said son would later immortalize the Duluth lynching in song. They're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors. The circus is in town. Here comes the blind commissioner. They've got him in a trance. One hand is tied to the tightrope walker. The other is in his pants. And the riot squad, they're restless. They need somewhere to go. As Lady and I look out tonight from Desolation Row. That's the opening verse of the song, Desolation Row, written by former Duluth resident, Bob Dylan. While it would appear that the only guilty parties in Duluth that night were a pair of teenagers and a mob, the fact that Maloney abandoned the circus after the lynching, and in seven days' time made his way to Chicago, where the jacket he was wearing wound up at the crime scene in another front-page news murder, begs belief. No connection of the two events has ever been previously reported. After being contacted by police, Maloney's sister said she had not seen nor heard from him in years. His brother Patrick Maloney of River Point, Rhode Island, echoed his sister's statements. Upon being sent photos of the body lying in the morgue and being given a general description of the body, both family members expressed their belief that the ragged stranger was not their brother. Contrary to the rest of the family, older brother Joseph believed that the ragged stranger was his brother. He based his belief of such on a dream he had had. Dreams aside, John Maloney was stout, with black hair, and in his mid-thirties. The body in the morgue was slight in build, with red hair, and in his early twenties. John J. Maloney was not the ragged stranger. The police were back to square one. The first few weeks of July saw a flurry of wishful identifications of the decidedly still unidentified body. It was around this time especially after Carl Wanderer had confessed to the double murder, exonerating the man he had double-crossed, that the newspapers would start calling him the Ragged Stranger, attesting to his down-on-his-luck anonymity. The same day the police tried to track down John Maloney, another identification would grab headlines as well. Catherine Vanos, newly employed as an elevator operator in the Rialto building, identified the Ragged Stranger as Al Watson. The New York Times quoted her, while my husband, who served in the Canadian forces, was in France, I was living at the home of my stepfather, C.H. Spivey, in Folkestone, England. My stepfather had also served in the war and held the rank of captain in the Scots Guard. It was in Folkestone that I first met Watson, who came frequently to visit us. He was at that time a patient in the Manor House Hospital, undergoing treatment following an operation on his nose. He told me that he originally came from New York where his father was a wealthy turfman and had everything money could buy or heart desire. Their meeting at the Manor House Hospital occurred in 1916, she told police, as well as that Watson was 28 years of age and had served in the 2nd Mechanical Transport Engineers of the Canadian Expeditionary Forces. The body in the morgue had less hair than she remembered Al Watson having, but he could have started balding, she suggested. The build and features of the man were similar, she said. Mrs. Vanos explained the man's ragged clothes and down-at-the-heels appearance. All the time I knew him, he was continually without money and cabled his father for more at frequent intervals. The Canadian Expeditionary Force that served from 1914 to 1918 during the Great War had 100 men with the surname Watson and some form of a name of Al, whether it be first or middle. There were 46 Alexanders, 22 Alberts, 
20 Alfreds, 6 Alexes, 2 Alvins, 2 Allens with an A, and lastly, 2 Allens with double L's and an E. None hit the trifecta of age, early to mid-twenties, as the coroner thought, or born in 1892, as Mrs. Vanos thought. Appearance, medium height, slight build, reddish hair, light complexion, and ties to New York, be it anyone being born in New York or with next of kin in the New York area. A few men got to two legs, but none of these panned out, as most were tracked down and found to be among the living after the murder occurred. While the search for Al Watson records through the Canadian Army came up empty, records for Catherine Vanos' husband, Jack Vanos, provided concrete information where his wife's leads proved fruitless. Like the skin of the onion, the more peeled back on Mr. Vanos, the more layers of the story were revealed. Jack Van Oss was born in Amsterdam in September of 1892. He served two years in the Dutch Army, later worked in a factory, and was described as tall and dark with hazel eyes. With the Dutch remaining neutral during the Great War, Van Oss joined the Canadian Expeditionary Force in September of 1914. After a little more than six months in the Army, Van Oss, 21 years of age, married 17-year-old Katerina Mondioli on March 29, 1915, in St. Jude's Church in the London neighborhood of East Brixton. Mondioli was born in Pennsylvania, the only child of Federico Mondioli, an Italian count that died not long after the birth of his daughter, and Lottie Dickies, an English woman and a former ballerina who studied dance in London under Caddy Lanner and Giuseppe Venuto de Francesco. After Federico's death, Lottie left the States to return to England. For some reason, she was under the impression that the family of her deceased husband, the Count, was plotting to steal baby Caterina from her to raise the child in Italy. Due to this, mother and daughter traveled under pseudonyms and aliases. Caterina went by Josephine and Mary at times, but would be known to her family mostly as Lori. With such clandestine travels, with the mother trained in the arts and stories of the noble Italian blood in Caterina's veins, the child likely grew up with an active imagination. Like often happened in the times, whether just a clerical error or something else, the spelling of people's names evolve. Two-word Van Os becomes one-word Vanos. Caterina gets anglicized to Catherine. As though Jack Van Os and Caterina Mondioli cease to exist, Records after their marriage referred to them as Jack and Catherine Vanos. Jack Vanos was a sapper in the 3rd Canadian Command Depot and had the most extensive military records of any that I came across in the course of my research, though most of his military records document him going in and out of military courtrooms for many multiple violations of public drunkenness, larceny, going AWOL, and desertion. During his March 1919 court-martial, after the war was over, he was found not guilty of desertion, but was sentenced to 90 days detention for going away without leave. Vanos's sentence was credited 30 days for what appears to have been time served during a period of hospitalization. The file does not specify when or where the hospitalization was, but regardless of the exact date, if this hospitalization was at Manor House Hospital, it was three years after Catherine Vanos swore it to be. The Army unit that Mrs. Vanos said Al Watson was a part of didn't exist in 1916, as she said. It wasn't created until April 1918, when the second supply column was amalgamated with the second ammunition subpark to then form the second mechanical transport company. Either her dates were wrong, her memory of the name of his unit was wrong, or her story was untrue. The British Red Cross maintains a database that allows for any surname, given name, or hospital 
to be searched for nurses that served as volunteers during the Great War. In trying to verify Mrs. Vanos's volunteer service at Manor House Hospital, that database was searched for any Catherine, Katerina, Lori, Josephine, or Mary, as well as any Mondioli, Spivey, Vanos, or Vanos. No records were found that would corroborate Mrs. Vanos having volunteered in the Manor House Hospital, as she had told reporters she had done. There are no records of any Al Watson that served in the Second Mechanical Transport Company. There are no records that any Al Watson was treated at the Manor House Hospital. No records were found anywhere that could confirm any aspect of Mrs. Vanos' story. While unable to reconcile Mrs. Vanos' recollection of her time at the Manor House, the period after the war did leave a trail of her and Jack's travels. After living for a time in London, Jack and Catherine made their way to the United States. A January 1920 U.S. Census form lists Jack Vanos as a 26-year-old laborer in a foundry, while Catherine Vanos is listed as a 22-year-old laundress, and they resided in a boarding house at 3323 South Michigan Avenue. After the census was taken in January, they made their way back to England for a visit and returned to the U.S. in July 1920 with the border crossing form recording their travels from England into Halifax, Canada, with Chicago listed as their final destination. The border crossing must have been in very early July, for it was on July 9, 1920, when Mrs. Vanos, after arriving back in town and hearing of a murder with a victim identified as possibly being named Watson, went into the city morgue and made an identification that was quoted in newspapers from coast to coast. July 9th and 10th were busy days for the Chicago police. In addition to investigating the past of Al Watson and circus worker John Maloney, Carl Wanderer had confessed to the crime. Mrs. Vanos made her identification of Al Watson at the morgue while the coroner's inquest was also going on there. It is likely that this coincidence of timing led to the Al Watson ID sticking around, as Mrs. Vanos' sworn affidavit in the county morgue became part of the official record. Despite the coroner's inquest documents naming Al Watson as a ragged stranger, John Maloney would be the man the newspapers focused on for a few days, until that identification fell through as well. With Mrs. Vanos' ID front page news, a racehorse owner in Teaneck, New Jersey, named George Watson, reported to the papers that his son, Alexander, was alive and well. This Alexander Watson was 38 years of age, not 28, as the man Mrs. Vanos described, and as a Scotsman, if he wanted to fight in the war, he wouldn't have done so for Canada. Alexander Watson, son of a racehorse owner in Teaneck, New Jersey, was not the Ragged Stranger. Despite Mrs. Vanos' story that the Ragged Stranger's father was a wealthy racehorse owner, never did there appear any other turfman riding into Chicago searching for his long-lost son. Other than a couple more mentions in later articles, Al Watson slipped from the pages of the story. Whether a coincidence or simply nature taking its course, on July 14th, five days after his wife's identification of Al Watson as the Ragged Stranger, Jack Vanos joined the U.S. Army and listed his address being a YMCA hotel in Chicago. This Dutch man, a veteran of their army and a serial deserter for the Canadian Army in the Great War, was now attesting his loyalty to the U.S. of A. in joining his now third National Army. Did his wife's identification of Watson cause strife between the two? Did that lead to him living in a men-only hotel days after her identification? Did it cause him to ship off and do the one thing he had shown he could do in the past and join an army? Catherine, or Katerina, or Lori, or even the Contessa, as she would all later be known, wound up back in England after a subsequent divorce from Jack, 
She would later remarry and spend time between England and Italy before finally moving back to the U.S. I tracked down Ms. Fee Berry, the grandniece of Catherine Vanos. Fee lives in the U.K. and contributed some family recollections of her great-aunt. I have just spoken to my mother, who remembers her aunt as someone who was a bit economical with the truth. She was also someone that liked the limelight. When my grandfather collected his MBE, he wanted to do so without any fuss and didn't want any of the family to go with him. Lori, Katerina, turned up and got into the photographs and perhaps got a taste for publicity. The MBE, she referred to, was a medal presented to Mrs. Vanos' stepfather as a member of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Fee shared with me a photo of Mrs. Vanos with her stepfather at Buckingham Palace on that day in 1918 after the ceremony. Her devilish grin with the first stole draped about her shoulders makes for a fantastic picture. This photo and more can be found on our blog at chicagonow.com slash the ragged stranger. While I don't doubt that Mrs. Vanos might have volunteered at the Manor House Hospital, and I also don't doubt that she might have known a now Watson, I highly doubt the rest of her story that the body on the slab in the morgue was the same Al Watson. Catherine Vanos's purported friend, Al Watson, was not the ragged stranger. The Al Watson narrative also got legs and remained in the public consciousness, as news of Mrs. Vanos's identification spread and caused many law enforcement agencies and newspapers to search their missing person files for potential matches. In doing so, a New Jersey newspaper reported of a missing man by the name of Alexander E. Watson, the narrative continued until a few days later when news emerged that the missing Al Watson from New Jersey was 45 years old and 5 feet 6 inches tall, much older and shorter than the ragged stranger. Alexander E. Watson, missing man from New Jersey, was not the ragged stranger. At this point, the police had investigated a half dozen people as potentially being the ragged stranger. None were. In an upcoming episode of the Mystery of the Ragged Stranger podcast, we will look at another half dozen men thought to be the Ragged Stranger, and one of those men, I believe, was the Ragged Stranger, and will tell his tale. On the next episode of The Mystery of the Ragged Stranger, Carl Wanderer goes to trial. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Edgar Ramos, Matt Schwerha, and everyone at Chicago Now for the help in producing this podcast. This series is made up of eight episodes, and our next episode will air on Monday, August 6th. We will release new episodes every other Monday through the end of September. We're going to leave you with a song called The Butcher's Boy by Buell Casey. The song is being heard courtesy of June Apple Recordings in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Enjoy. Stay.
Oh, 